Welcome to the Eastern Hills Audio Podcast. We exist to help as many people as possible take their next step towards finding community and following Christ. Maybe you've got questions about Jesus. Maybe you're good with Jesus, just not his church. Maybe you're feeling disconnected and want to reconnect. We think you'll find our messages both helpful and hopeful. So enjoy. Well, thanks for watching, or maybe you're listening later in the week, listening to our podcast, Getting Caught Up. My name's Rob, and I get to serve as a pastor here at Eastern Hills. And if this is your first time with us, you picked a great time to engage with us as we kick off a new series, Citizen. And yes, we're going to be talking about politics in church. When I met with the board and told them I was going to be doing this, you should have saw the, the deer in the headlights look from them. You know, some people would say, you don't talk about politics in church. It's like putting a pink sock and a load of water whites in the laundry. It's going to mess everything up. I'll have to be honest in saying that this is the first time that I've ever received emails about a message before I even preached the message. So this is going to be an interesting next couple weeks. But in the weeks ahead, what I want us to discover is that when we make this statement, I'm a Christian, it is a political statement. You know, sharing the gospel is political. The gospel and politics are less like that pink sock and a load of whites, and more like peanut butter and jelly. They are forever linked. When I say peanut butter and, you fill in the blank with jelly. Peanut butter and jelly are forever linked in the same way that the gospel and politics are forever linked. We're going to see that over the next few weeks. But before you go and pour that glass of milk, I do have an important disclaimer for you. This series is not, is not, and I repeat, is not to help us become more political in our thinking. This series is designed to help us become more biblical in our thinking. And if you're watching or listening today and you're thinking, okay, well, the Bible's not my authority. It's not the thing that governs my life. It's a good contributor. I like the love. I like learning about Jesus. But I wouldn't say that the Bible serves as the filter for my decision making. I'm glad that you're engaged with us, but my ask for you over the next few weeks would for you would, is for you to be open-handed about what Jesus had to say about some of these important issues and what the New Testament leaders had to say about some of these important issues. Because I think we can both agree that if someone is willing to die for something or someone, it warrants consideration. But before we go any further, we must embrace an elephant in the room, and that it is Super Bowl Sunday. You know, this, this Super Bowl marks the first time in the history of all Super Bowls where a team will play and in their home stadium, TB12, Tom Brady. This will mark his 10th Super Bowl. That's incredible. And this is the first time in 37 years that Budweiser is not going to air an advertisement. There is some upside to this year's Super Bowl. I know maybe some, some people are used to large gatherings are on, on Super Bowl Sunday, and maybe that won't happen this year. But there's some upside to that because when you watch the Super Bowl, there's usually two groups. There are those that are serious about the game, and there are those those that are only there to watch the commercials. And so maybe this year that'll help keep, you know, proper separation of those two groups. And you might be able to enjoy the Super Bowl for how you like to enjoy it this year. But in recognition of Super Bowl Sunday, I have broken up this message into four quarters. Right now we're in the first quarter and I'm going to introduce the new series and today's topic. The second quarter, I'm going to talk about today's topic 
big picture. We're going to take a like, zoom out on the topic. Uh, in the third quarter, I'm going to zoom in and get, you know, more what does it look like for us as individuals. Uh, in the fourth quarter, I'm going to talk about some application and where we're going in the weeks ahead. So as the first quarter comes to a close, here is our series thesis and where we're going the next few weeks. And we're talking about this reality that citizens of God's kingdom are from every nation and should be good citizens in any nation. And today we're going to talk about the first part of this statement. And then in weeks two and three, we're going to talk about the latter part of this statement. The reality is, if you consider yourself a biblical Christian as I do, we must embrace this tension. Biblical Christianity is not fully compatible with any one political party or ideology. If the scriptures and the Old Testament and the scriptures and the New Testament and the 66 books that we call the Bible serve as the authority in our life, the vessel that steers our decision making, then we are going to experience conflict politically. In the same way that we would say, hey, things that are guaranteed in life, death and taxes, well, if you're a biblical Christian and the Bible serves your authority, you can also guarantee conflict when it comes to your faith and politics. So here's a question that we will explore over the next few weeks. How do we respond when our loyalty as a citizen of this nation collides with our loyalty as a citizen of God's kingdom. This is the tension that you and I face when we step into the voting booth. This is the tension that we face when we're at the dinner table and politics come up and our faith come up. And this is the tension we face when we're on social media engaged in political conversations. This is the tension we face when we enter into the workplace and politics and faith come up with our Co-workers. And this is the tension we've faced in churches across America in the past 12 to 15 months and for decades before that. And this was the very tension that the Apostle Paul was addressing when he penned a letter to the church of Ephesus. We read about this in the New Testament. You ready for the second quarter? Here we go. We're going to zoom out now and look at today's topic from a big picture perspective. Now, Indiana Jones, you know, one of my film, you know, one of my heroes in film, and I enjoyed the first three movies, part one, part two, part three. I think Indiana Jones is a trilogy. You could say, well, there's part four. I'm just going to pretend like that never happened, though I'm willing, you know, to see what happens in part five, which supposedly is, is, in, is in the works. But in part three of the trilogy, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, if you remember, Indy's pursuing the Holy Grail and immortality. Well, at 43 years old, TB12, Tom Brady, is playing at MVB-type levels. Some would say that he's drank from the Holy Grail. <laughs> he's the chosen one when it comes to the National Football League. Well, years ago, God looked down upon humanity and chose a group of people to be identified as God's chosen people. They were to serve as human billboards, light in the darkness, beacons of hope. And through this group, God would bring about redemption and restoration to humanity in this broken world. And we read about this in the Old Testament, a book that we call Deuteronomy. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And so this group, the Israelites, served for centuries as God's chosen people until 
Jesus showed up on the scene with a simple message. And the simple message was this, that the enterprise is expanding. And Jesus' message was this. Now he was going to move beyond just one nation and he was going to reach all nations and all people and all places. And Jesus explained to Peter, listen, this movement, this gathering of people that I'm going to bring about redemption is going to be done through the local church. And so now both Jews and Gentiles would serve as those human billboards or human disco balls reflecting the glory of God and his love uh, through his people, the church. And the Apostle Paul wrote to explain this change, this shift in thinking, this expansion of the enterprise to the church of Ephesus when he said, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So God's expansion now to include both Jews and Gentiles. And this was extremely difficult for this group that had served as God's VIP for centuries, you know, if you go to the club, there's the VIP section and everybody else. And God's saying, now I am going to take back the rope and say, hey, you know, we're not just about one nation. We're about all nations and all people and all places. You know, if you travel, you probably are part of the frequent flyer miles club or whatever your preferred airline is. And when you travel, there's those clubs, those are exclusive clubs in the airport to separate you from the crazy families that navigate travel uh, like the Ryersons. You know, sometimes when we travel, I feel like we're on an episode of Survivor and people probably look at it look at our family that way because, you know, we get food. We're just like kind of ravaging like we haven't eaten before. Like, let's just grab something quickly. We don't want to pay for the meal on the plane. And, you know, we're all disheveled and we're just trying to like, you know, we've got all these backpacks and stuff like popping out and we're just kind of like getting through the airport. We haven't slept because we woke up all morning and, and we just look like a hot mess and the kids are crying and we kind of like stake out our territory. You know, that's what it looks like for the Ryersons when we, when we travel. And, and that's why we have these exclusive clubs so that you don't have to deal with families like us. Well, God's saying, hey, listen, no more exclusive club here. You know, Jews and Gentiles together, all people, all places, all nations. Take a look at this jersey here. This is my uh, high school football jersey. And, you know, I, I'm kind of having Uncle Rico moment. That's a Napoleon Dynamite reference there. You know, reliving the glory days. And, on our jerseys, we didn't have, you know, our names on the back. You know, a little fun fact for you. And maybe I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it's Notre Dame and Penn State, the last two college football teams to put the name of the player on the back of the jersey. But we didn't do that. But the point of the jersey is to say, hey, I identify with this group. This is my label. This is my identity. I play on this team. And, and the, the opposing team has that jersey. And, and there's that group. And then there's this group. So, you know, when the player's on the field, okay, that's my opponent. You know, in the, in the stands, that's team one. That's team two. It's an identity. Identity, I identify with this group. This is my team. And this is not a new concept. This concept has been around for generations. You know, we see this with brandings and markings and tattoos and uniforms. And the label Christian 
that we read about in the New Testament, we see it four times. Originally, it was not a badge of honor. You know, really, it was a target. It was to identify that this group, those that follow Christ, they were part of the movement called the Way, Little Christ, they were an enemy of the government, and they were an enemy of the religious elite. And to be a Christian meant that you had changed teams, that your allegiance was to Christ, and that he was the ultimate and true authority in your life. And this is what Paul was explaining to the church of Ephesus when he said, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and citizens, uh, foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And so this word here, consequently, is a reference back to everything Paul said before this statement. So I want to read that to you in Ephesians 2, 11 through 19. You can follow along now. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. And so what Paul's referencing here is part of the tension that existed in the church of Ephesus. What's well, okay, the gospel, Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Yep, that sets us right with God. But you also need to get circumcised just like us, uh, the Jews. And so the Gentiles are saying, whoa, <laughs> well, that was not in the fine print. And so Paul's addressing this conflict. Paul says, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, removing the stanchion in the club. No more VIP. You know, it's Jews and Gentiles. He's destroyed the, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, Jesus, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to father, to the father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So when Paul says, Jesus came to preach peace to those of you who were far away and those who were near, it's a reference to the message that we call the gospel. This was the message that Jesus preached when he arrived. This was the message that the New Testament leaders carried on after Jesus was gone. And it can be summarized in six points. So in the beginning, God created everything. Everything was good. Humanity, the, the heavens, the stars, God created it and it was good. But God gave a command. He said, listen, you can do a lot of things. In fact, you can do most anything, but you can't do this one thing. And if you eat of this one tree, it's going to destroy the relationship you have with me. And for thousands of years, this has been our battle. You know, we have so much, but we focus on what we don't have. And so Adam and Eve chose sin. They chose to disobey. They rebelled. And that rebellion destroyed humanity's relationship with 
our creator. And so the good news is, is that from the beginning, very first book of the Bible, God has a rescue plan through Jesus. You know, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, you know, serving as the perfect sacrifice for humanity's sin sets us right when we place our faith in him and him alone. So that's God's rescue plan. And then from there, humanity responds to the truth of the gospel and how we love God and serve his people. And then the end of the gospel, the culmination of the gospel is what we read about in Revelation, that one day God's going to come back. He's going to restore the earth. Um, he's going to give us a earth, an earth that's, that's free from the pain and brokenness that we experience today. But Paul's addressing this part of the gospel here, our response, when he says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. This idea of being a citizen was a familiar concept to Paul's audience. And he was helping them understand how the gospel shapes their worldview. That as a citizen, as a person, you have uh, rights, that you legally belong in this country and your rights are to be protected by that country. And what's also true about citizens is that a citizen in any culture or any group will adopt the practices or the culture or values of that kingdom group or nation that they belong to. And this has been true for many years. And it's just, it's still true of Americans today. In fact, I was reading this week an article from Forbes magazine where they unpacked the 17 weird things that Americans do. I want to share a few with you. Here's the first one. We call our courses by the wrong name. We say entree. As the main, you know, we look at a menu, here, here are our entrees, and those are the main dish. But entree is a French term. Uh, it means entrance. Literally, it's meant to be the starting point of the meal. It's usually the appetizer, but what Americans call the entree is called the main course in other countries. Here's another one. We don't know what lemonade is. In many countries, lemonade is not the iconic sugary drink that is sold by kids uh, across America in their neighborhood at stands. Nope. In other countries, lemonade generally is the equivalent of the soda Sprite. One more. Uh, we don't let go of our past. This is true. Uh, you know, we identify through our heritage instead of our nationality. I remember in fifth grade doing a project, you know, talking about my family's uh, heritage. You know, I'm, I'm part Irish. I've got a little bit of this in me and I got a little bit of that in me. And we do that as, as Americans. You know, we, uh, we, we don't speak the language. We don't have much connection to that country anymore, but that's what we claim. You know, we claim our heritage over our nationality. In most parts of the world, we say, hey, listen, this is where I was born and this is the country that I claim. This is something that we do. It's part of the cultural practices of, of Americans. Now, biblically speaking, what the scriptures tell us is that it's true that we grow up adopting the culture, adopting practice, practices, adopting the values of the country we live in. But the scriptures tell us that those things are heavily influenced by earthly rulers and our adversary. Paul told the church of Corinth, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. So every human being is born into the kingdom of this world, which the scriptures say Satan rules. And so the things that we grow up adopting, you know, cultural practices and values are under the influence 
of Satan. And apart from Christ, we blindly follow the ruler of this world into sin. And we remain captives in the kingdom of sin until Jesus frees us. And so when we place our faith in Christ, we're then born into a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And so in another New Testament letter, Paul writes, but our citizenship is now in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we become citizens of an eternal kingdom, this is what happens. Our allegiance changes. The earthly rulers in our lives may have legal authority, but Jesus becomes our true king. And that truth makes the gospel political in its nature. Don't miss this. The gospel is political because it declares Jesus is king. You see, Christianity and politics are forever infused because Christianity invites us to make a shift in our allegiance from our earthly ruler to our heavenly ruler, King Jesus. And so when I say peanut butter and, you fill in the blank with jelly. Peanut butter and jelly. Those things are forever linked. You might say peanut butter and fluff. You know, I grew up with fluffernutter sandwiches that was delicious. But for most people, peanut butter and jelly are forever linked. And the same way that the gospel and politics are forever linked. We can't share the gospel without being political. And this was true for the early church leaders. And it's true for leaders in the church today. To invite someone to become a Christian is to say, abandon your loyalty to your political party. Abandon your loyalty to that governing entity and make Jesus the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the priority, the ultimate authority in your life. And this is why Jesus's kingship threatened political leaders. From the moment that Jesus arrives on the scene, he was a political threat. We talked about this during the Christmas series. If you recall, you know, when King Herod hears of a new king on the scene, he orders the mur murder of children, all because the kingship of Christ was threatening to him. We also see that Jesus's kingship threatened religious leaders. And so the Jerusalem leaders heard about Jesus talking about the kingdom, Jesus talking about the empire. He was known as the king of the Jews. And this title was treasonous since only Rome could appoint uh, or sanction kings. And so to protect their position as the religious elite, they asked Pilate to crucify Jesus and saying, hey, this guy is causing problems, not only for us, but also for you as a political ruler. Luke tells us, Luke tells us how it all goes down. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. This is Jesus. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate made the, the, the religious elite beg for Jesus to be crucified. But they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people. He's causing problems, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. And so Pilate and the religious elite had common interest in maintaining the status quo that Jesus was blowing up. 
And so from the moment of his arrival, Jesus' kingship threatened political leaders. Jesus' kingship threatened religious leaders. And so the moment you say, I'm a Christian, you are declaring that Christ is my king. He's the authority in my life. I answer to him. So the gospel is political because it declares Jesus is king. And with that, we wrap up the second quarter and we go into the third quarter. And sorry, folks, there's no halftime show. I'm not going to, you know, do a little dance and sing for you today. Uh, we're going to go right into the third quarter and we're going to zoom in now. So I talked about this idea of citizenship, big picture. Let's talk about this as individuals uh, in the day to day. You know, this uh, past summer, I got a chance to go to Colonial Williamsburg, the Yorktown Battlefield, and Jamestown, and, and we got to just learn more about American history. And, you know, one of the things that I was fortunate enough to do was, was to listen to historians dressed in the proper attire according to that time uh, that, or error. And it was just fascinating to hear about life back then and, and to hear about some of the, you know, what it would have been like for some of the soldiers during the Civil War. And a souvenir that I picked up was this giant size replica of a penny featuring one of my favorite presidents, Abraham Lincoln. And on the coin, much like the other coins uh, in American currency, it has a Latin phrase. It says, e pluribus unum which means out of the many, one. And it's a motto that's supposed to remind us that we can have unity and diversity. Is that how you would describe our nation at this point in time? Unity and diversity? It would be easy from this point forward to point fingers at the left, to point fingers at the right. The opposite would be much harder, which would be to shine the spotlight on us, to put our own actions under the microscope, and to identify our contribution to the conflict. Check out this delicious apple pie. A friend of mine talks about pies when he's unpacking conflict resolution. Years ago, he shared this illustration with me when he's meeting with a husband and wife for marital um, counseling, and they're talking about a conflict that they're trying to work through. He will draw a circle on a piece of paper and say, let's imagine this circle is a pie. What I want you to do is to shade in your contribution to the conflict. And so if you could imagine, you know, they, they kind of shade in and say, okay, here's the huge pie. I'm going to, you know, shade in, you know, my contribution. And I'm willing to say that this slice right here, I'm going to take this and this is my slice of the pie. This is my contribution to the conflict. And then he'll say, great, great. What I want to do for, for the next few minutes is I want to focus in on your contribution to the conflict, your slice of the pie. And you know what happens? They can never do it <laughs> because what we want to do as human beings is we want to talk about the other person's <laughs> contribution to the conflict. We want to talk about the rest of the pie. Yeah, this is my problem, but I want to talk about your problems. And we do this when we engage in conflict and we have conversations around politics. We're so quick to point the finger here, there, and everywhere else. And it's harder for us to say, okay, here's my contribution to the conflict. So how are Christians doing at experiencing unity 
in diversity? That's the question that I want us to think about today. So years ago, Jesus' kingship was called into question by religious leaders, and they were trying to trap Jesus. And Jesus' response gives us a case study in how we deal with the tension that, yes, it is true that we are citizens of heaven, citizens of God's kingdom, but we're also citizens of this nation. He writes in the Gospel of Luke, uh, or Luke tells us in his Gospel, he writes about this Conflict that Jesus experienced. It's chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. Follow along. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Again, Jesus' kingship was a threat, threat to both political leaders and religious leaders. So the spies questioned him, Teacher! We know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, he saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius. So show, show me the money. Show me the money. Show me the coin whose image and inscription are on it. That's the question Jesus asked. Show me the denarius whose image and inscription are on it. And their response, Caesar's. And so Jesus' response back to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Luke tells us that they were unable to trap him and what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. And so when Jesus said, Show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. There was a question behind the question. You see, Jesus used this conversation to bring to light uh, the struggle that we have had for centuries and a struggle that still exists today. And the question behind the question is this. Whose image do you bear? To whom do you pledge allegiance? Who do you answer to? You know, there's a reason why I would never wear this cap to Yankee Stadium. I got kids at home. I got to live to see another day. But if I were to go and wear my socks at a Yankee Stadium, I'm saying, hey, I pledge my allegiance to the socks. You know, I'm here to represent them. But, you know, it's just as controversial to go to a Yankees game and not wear any hat because then everybody's saying, okay, I can see where that guy stands and I can see who's with us. But where do you stand? To whom do you pledge your Allegiance. Whose image do you bear? And I know this to be true because if you go to Fenway Park, the same can be said about Yankees fans and those who are wearing hats and those who are not wearing hats. What side are you on? Whose image do you bear? And this is an important question for us to wrestle with today. As Jesus explains through a parable, he says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from the briars. So if we're to take this truth seriously, and I think we should because it's Jesus, the question, whose image do you bear, shouldn't even be a question that's asked 
of Christians. See, the label Christian was given to a group of people that were so closely aligned with Jesus, so closely aligned to proclaiming the truth of the scriptures and who Jesus was and what he came to do, that it influenced the way that they lived their life and so that there was no question. They were given the label Christian because it was clear to them uh, and of everybody else around them that they followed Jesus. And that it's obvious that each tree is recognized by its own fruit. Oh, of course. They're with Jesus. They're Christians. So another way of thinking about it is this, is this way. I want you to take a look at this picture here of my three beautiful daughters. This is Lily, Clover, and Rose. And for those that, that, that do life with us, some of our friends, you know, as they've watched Clover grow up a little bit, they've always said, you know what, Clover looks like her daddy. This is Clover here. You know, I can see the family resemblance. It's always fun to watch, you know, what character, physical traits, you know, your kids, uh, you know, have of yours and what characteristics and personality traits they have of yours. And for those that know us, they would look at Clover and say, man, she just looks just like her daddy. I can see the family resemblance. And so when Jesus said each tree is recognized by its own fruit, he was suggesting that we should live our lives in such a way that those that we do life with say, you know what? I see the family resemblance. They follow Jesus. So here's the question again. Whose image do you bear? When it comes to the pursuit of Christ, when it comes to your pursuit of Christ, would people say, I see the resemblance. Let's take it a step further. How would you fill in the blank? I identify as what? You know, in this country, we still classify people into, into two groups, you know, blue collar and white collar. It's a label that we give to people based on their profession. Here in central New York, another label that I hear people talk about is the school district. I mean, it's a big, what school do you attend? What school district are you a part of? And we've even given labels based on the school district. I've heard people say, you know, that's very FM. That's true of FM. That's a, that's a label, the FM, Fayetteville, Manliest School District. It's a label. That's very FM. When you watch the football game, if you watch the football game, Super Bowl, you're going to see the players and their starting lineup and they're going to talk, you know, they're going to say their name and they're going to say what college or university they went to. They might say, you know, Bama, Roll Tide or, you know, Auburn, War Eagle. It's a label. Those are labels. The statement, I'm a feminist, that's a, that's a label. A MAGA, BLM, labels, preferred pronouns. Those are labels. Here is my label. Every civilization has struggled with identity. Labels are not going away. It's still one of the most current and relevant topics even today um, as Americans. I hope that we can all find freedom in this next truth that I'm going to share. And this truth comes from the gospel. And I hope that you believe it so. We are more than a label. We're more than a label. You see, branding starts at a young age. They are an athlete. They are a musician. They are book smart. We love to brand people. We love to put a label on people. But Jesus died so that we could discover that he has so much more for us than the label that we give ourselves. So much more than the label that other people give us. You know, one of my favorite gifts 
uh, came from my wife. And a few years back for, for my birthday, she gave me a custom Patriots, Patriots jersey. And so sorry, Bills fans, you know, you'll have to, you know, check out for a few minutes as I rave about my Patriots attire. Um, but it's got my name and it's got my, my number from, from high school, number 17. And this is one of my favorite gifts. I love to wear this jersey when I'm watching the game. And up until recently, I'm usually watching my team play on, on Super Bowl Sunday. But my favorite gift that I've ever received is the gift of God's grace. And it was somewhere between the you know, latter part of being 18 and the early part of being 19. And when I received this gift of God's grace, I switched teams. I changed political parties. My identity changed. I'm with Jesus. Jesus is my king, my savior. The apostle Paul explains this transformation in this way. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, then the label Christian is, is insufficient because Paul's saying we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are more than a label. In Christ, we are more than a label. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with our king. The Greek term translated heirs in, Roman, uh, in Romans refers to those who receive their allotted possession by right of sonship. In other words, because God has made us his children, we have the full rights to receive his inheritance. Uh, we are the, God's beneficiaries. Everything that belongs to, to God now belongs to us as we now belong to him. And so the, the label Christian just falls short. We are so much more than a label. Now, we're going to enter into the fourth quarter and time is running out. I'll talk about some application and the weeks ahead. Let's revisit the question that I started with. How do we respond when our loyalty as a citizen of this nation collides with our loyalty as a citizen of God's kingdom? We've already seen that we cannot follow Jesus and avoid politics and the conflict that comes with that. So what's the solution? Is it the monk life? Do we just disengage? No, I don't think so. Because Jesus said, as my father has sent me, as the father sent me, I am sending you. So we enter into this conflict with the gospel. Uh, Jesus provided the game plan when he said, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So I'm going to make it really simple. Here's the solve. Anytime our loyalties collide, remember where our allegiance lies. I'm going to ask you to, to repeat it with me. I know it's a little goofy, but I think you can do it. Anytime our loyalties collide, remember where our allegiance lies. Lies. When my team is playing, I'm first and foremost a follower of Christ. You know, when I figure, fill out a questionnaire and they want my ethnicity and my gender, listen, I'm first and foremost a follower of Christ. You know, when I step into the voting booth and they ask me for my political party, I'm first and foremost with King Jesus. When I step onto social media and begin to engage in conversation, I represent King Jesus. Jesus. And so for the next two weeks, I'm going to talk about some practical examples, some collisions that take place that we experience both as citizens of this nation and citizens of God's 
kingdom. So two common conflicts that Christians faced years ago and still face today. Uh, one is the conflict around war and violence. And so we're going to look at Romans chapter 12 and, and Romans 13. You know, Jesus said to love our enemy in the same way that Paul said to live at peace, be at peace with everyone. And yet it seems as though there are times when peace is just not possible. How do I love my enemy when my enemy is threatening to hurt someone or something that I love? And two extremes that we see in the church today would be those that hold to the position of pacifism, meaning, hey, violence is never okay, and to those that hold to the position of preemptive war. Get them before they get you. And then in week three, we're going to talk about the government's role in our life through Romans 13. You know, one extreme is, listen, all government is corrupt, so we should just do away with it all. And if you hold that position, I'm going to challenge you with this question. Does chaos trump corruption? Does bad order supersede no order at all? Someone might say, well, I hear that God says government is good, but I don't trust government. I hear you, and we're going to have a conversation about that. But in order for us to engage in these conversation, what I want to do is define some rules of engagement. I don't assume that we're going to agree on everything that I share, whether it's today or in the weeks ahead. And I'm okay with that. But I, I want us to make sure that as we engage in these conversations, that we're operating with some guardrails so that we don't go off-road. Here's the first one. Before I engage politically, I will think Biblically. Before I engage politically, I will think biblically. Listen, I might want to go back onto social media if we could agree to this simple truth. I'll explain. You know, a bad approach to our conversations over the next few weeks would, to, would be to allow our political views to inform what the Bible says. A better approach would be allowing our political views to be informed by what the scriptures say. This was, what, this was Jesus' approach, and this was the approach of the leaders in the early church. And if you're watching or listening, and again, you'd say, yeah, but the scriptures are not my authority. Here's something that we can both commit to. We want to look for commonalities before exposing differences. You see, when we unite, we invite conversations. When we look for those points that we do agree on before the points that we disagree on, we keep the conversations going. When we divide, we ignite conversations. When we're having a conversation and all that we're focused on is what we disagree on, it's going to blow up the conversation and shut it down before the conversation even begins. See, the gravitational pull when we have conversations that can be controversial. It's like the game of jump rope. Sometimes this is what we do. We're looking, we're looking, we're looking to jump in. And the moment that we spot the thing that we disagree on, we jump in and we try to blow up the conversation. And I'm going to ask you over the next few weeks to resist that temptation, to only listen for what you disagree with rather than looking for what you do agree on. And with that said, we hit the two-minute warning. <laughs> two-minute warning. I'm going to wrap this up with this final thoughts. You know, regardless of where you stand politically, you know, maybe in this season, you're looking into the future of our country with tremendous optimism. You're excited about what's ahead. Maybe in this season, you're losing sleep on what the future holds or might hold for this country.
My prayer is that regardless of where you are at, my prayer is that we would be filled with the hope and trusting in this promise. You see, when Jesus was confronted about his kingship and he made this, and he made this statement, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When Jesus said this, here's what he knew to be true. Caesar's come and go. Christ reigns forever. You know, in my lifetime, I've lived under the rule of six presidents. My grandparents have lived under the rule of 15 presidents. And here's what's true. Every single president has disappointed someone. And every single president has failed in some capacity. Hear this, please. Don't miss this. Human leaders fail us. Jesus never will. And when I make this statement, I put myself into this category here. Human leaders fail us, but Jesus never will. See, what also is true about this coin is it has a statement on it and it says, In God we trust. The image that the coin bears might be of a political ruler, but the statement, in God we trust, reminds us that in the end, as a Christ follower, we pledge our allegiance to Christ the King. And whenever our loyalties collide, we remember where our allegiance lies. Human leaders fail us, but Jesus never will. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for those that went before us and engaged in these, these topics, these conversations. Thank you that you've given us your scripture and truth to, to guide us, to govern us. And then over the next few weeks, I just pray for our hearts to be open and receptive to what you have to say to help us grow, to be better representatives of you to be those human billboards to the world around us, that you would challenge us to see those areas of our lives in which we're following, falling short when it comes to loving you and loving other people well. I pray for protection over our church and our community as we engage in these conversations. What if, what if, Father, we, would, we were able to provide the blueprint to our community and, and how to engage in these hard conversations? I pray that would be true for our church. And I pray these things in the power of your Son, Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. If so, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast. For more information about Eastern Hills, please check out easternhills.org. We would love to pray for you. Email your request to office at easternhills.org. If you would like to donate to the ministry of Eastern Hills, click the donate button in the upper right-hand corner of our website. We look forward to connecting with you again next week. Take care. God bless.